English Art International presents Fresh Talk, conversations about creativity in the 21st century. I'm Kathy Bird, Fresh Art producer, and this morning I'm on the phone with Jason Moran, an amazing pianist-composer based in New York. Jason has toured and recorded around the world for 12 years with his piano trio, The Bandwagon. He's a MacArthur Fellow and the Artistic Advisor for Jazz at the Kennedy Center. I met him through artist Joan Jonas when they performed The Shape, The Scent, The Feel of Things at the University of Texas Performing Arts Center in Austin a few weeks ago. Jason, I'm really excited that I get a chance to speak with you, and I am particularly fascinated with the aspect of improvisation in your work. I work with visual artists a lot, and when I'm thinking of them in particular, I know that their audience, their collectors, their gallerists, their curators are expecting them to establish a certain style that's unique but recognizable and maybe somewhat predictable. So they improvise at first and then end up setting a pattern. When did improvising become your pattern? Well, within the jazz structure, the most important aspect of it is improvisation. So, I mean, I was playing piano from age 6 to age 13, and I was playing Suzuki piano, which basically has no improvisation in it. At least I didn't feel any. So what I fell in love with was when I heard Thelonious Monk playing piano and and understanding that jazz was full of improvisation or that the blues was full of improvisation. So from that point on in my life, it was integral that I learned, the you know, how to improvise, the language of improvisation. Because within jazz, there are many different languages to speak. And once you start studying the history of what has come before, just as a painter would study different painters from different centuries, then you understand the techniques. So right now, it just is, you know, it's kind of how I eat and live and breathe is through improvisation. When you're talking about your collaborations with Joan, for example, Mm -hmm. you've described the importance of the relationship between the sonic and visual landscape. And I'm wondering how those relational themes evolved in projects with other artists that you've worked with. With Joan, it was important to just kind of break break the ice and not come in with any set plan of what the music would sound like or, you know, just to have no notion um, and just to really watch and then see how the sound would come together in the space as I looked at her work. Whether I'm looking at quilts from Alabama or looking at a painting by John Biggers or looking at a video by Carol Walker, there's different ways of addressing how to, you know, the sonic landscape. You know, one might be related to movement. Watching Joan move in a space is about movement. It is about gesture. Carol Walker, her videos are more about, you know, kind of this relationship to America's social history and the pains that man goes through to hurt other men and women. So you kind of deal with that aspect and what can, what sounds are appropriate or can help underscore these stories. Some that are abstract and some that are very, you know, uh, concrete and real. So that's, you know, when I play with those notions, then you can deal with whether I play a tonally or I play tonally or I play a song or play an improvisation or just play a groove or just play a repeated figure. Learning that language then helps kind of set the new standard for what the new piece would be with these various collaborators. You were saying that with Glenn Ligon, you actually played the same song in a lot of different ways? And with Glenn, I mean, that was kind of 
what he was asking, almost like if we were going to do a Goldberg variations, but we were going to do a Goldberg variations on a, on a minstrel thing, you know, nobody, the song that Burt Williams sang in 1906. So, and that became an interesting topic to address musically, how to, to play a sound that would, uh, continue to evolve and not become redundant nor repetitive. As I was watching you and Joan perform in Austin, I was struck with the spatial dynamic. Mm-hmm. You were on stage and you were seated with your back to the audience. Right. But at many times, it seemed to me, Joan and the other performers were out of your view or at the very edge of your peripheral vision. And right. I wondered how you established this sonic rapport with the unseen in that situation. Mm. Well, sometimes the unseen is the unseen. Um, <laughs> and you hope to have some kind of dialogue whether you see them or not. You know, a lot of what I'm focusing on in the piece is, is a lot of the video because the music is never really the, the it's not the action, it's the landscape. And, and in many ways, the video that Joan has, it serves as the landscape. So I wanted to stay kind of within those realms. So I've never fully seen the piece. Even when I watch the video of the piece, I'm never really understanding the aspect because then I'm watching it on a screen and that makes a big difference. So... It's also like playing in a club or playing with a band. It's impossible to hear everything that everyone is doing. You can focus on a few things and and then play to those things. But then after that, you also have to just be able to, to make sound and hope that it will all come together in some grand unified vision of for the audience, you know, to experience. And sometimes it comes together. Sometimes it doesn't. But that's the risk that we, we play with as performers. How did the the setting affect that dynamic at Dia versus the small stage in Austin. Well, in Dia, what was beautiful was we spent months in there. We spent two or three months working on the piece and developing it. So that made a big difference for us. What would happen at the stage in Austin is we had a little bit of time, but the one thing we had by that point was a lot of history of performing that work. So we understood how it works, you know, uh, what goes where and how, um, and then we can make adjustments. The beautiful thing is, is you make the adjustments and then those become the facts. So it's not about this myth of what deal was. It was really only about how did Austin feel, you know, how did it feel to perform this at the University of Texas. And that's what we tried to focus on, not the differences between the two spaces, because every space is always going to be different. And then even more than that, every audience will be different. Some will really want to engage and some won't. I mean, this is how this is how it is. So to a degree, you have control, but to another degree, you have no control. And sometimes no control is good. That issue of the controlled space was really played into your recent residency at the Whitney Museum. I know that you worked with your wife, uh, mezzo-soprano Alicia Hall Moran, and you produced this project you called Bleed, all these different live performances that was beyond jazz and opera completely. That must have been a very exciting process for you. Right. I mean, you know, for five days to spend time working in the Whitney, you know, not only with my wife, who we've had a long relationship with, but also with a bunch of other friends. So it really became like a community project. 
So people like Carol Walker come and join us. Joan Jonas joins us. Columnist from the New York Times, Charles Lowe, joins us. You know, my band joins us. We have Tycho drummers join us. And that, you know, it became a really ongoing exploration of, of what our community is and the various kinds of output that we make, whether we're writers, dancers, singers, or musicians, or artists. And each artist really decided to kind of expand their boundaries in a way, too. John Jonas had never performed with my group, The Bandwagon, but there she was up on stage with us. Or Kara Walker had never done a musical performance before, and there she was up there singing and presenting a new work. And that was kind of how it unfolded. My wife was doing a piece with Tycho Drummers where she was singing a Beyonce song. So, you know, every everything was new. Everything was fresh. And we were presenting it to an audience that was accustomed to, to viewing work, a museum audience, uh, a, a biennial audience. And within the grand scope, it was a wonderful five days. I imagine that the experience gave you ideas for other collaborations. I mean, yes, they have. I mean, most importantly is, is I think, how do I transform just the small work that I do with my group, visually or aesthetically? How can I expand my repertoire just on the stage, not only through music, but through movement, through lighting, through costumes? So that kind of thing becomes very exciting. And that's kind of what I look forward to examining some more. I mean, people have already begun to write us, my wife and I, about whether or not we'll present a similar project in other places. And it's very difficult. Actually, it's impossible to do what we just did in New York because New York is our home. So there there are other mutations that might happen in other places, but they won't be believed. They'll be something different. And my wife and I, you know, kind of are continuing to kind of sift through the the options that come our way. And uh, in due time, something new will happen.
You've been listening to Fresh Talk with Jason Moran. Read more about Jason and hear other podcasts in this series on freshartinternational.com.